the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Thanks, Dan. Today on the program, we're going to hear a classic interview with Scott Rank, author of History's Nine Most Insane rulers. You might be surprised at who's on that list and who's not on it. We're also going to talk a bit about the debate that's coming up this evening, where you can listen on radio live among the Salem Salem Media Group. So we'll give you those details in just a few moments and throughout the program. Uh, And we'll cover what's going on in Washington, here at home and abroad. So we're glad to have you with us on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, tonight, the Salem Radio Network is going to present live coverage of the first 2020 presidential debate between President Donald Trump and Joe Biden, which is being moderated by Chris Wallace of Fox News Channel. Well, SRN's coverage is going to start at 8.06 Eastern Time. That's 5.06 our time with a special SRN debate preview. And that's going to be hosted by nationally syndicated SRN talk host Hugh Hewitt. He's going to be joined by special guests and feature an update from SRN News White House correspondent Greg Clutston, uh, who is credentialed. He's going to report from the debate venue at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Then at um, 6 p.m. Pacific time, the Trump-Biden debate will begin live from Cleveland under the auspices of the nonpartisan Commission on Presidential Debates. The debate, which will run for 90 minutes with no commercial interruptions, will be divided into six segments of approximately 15 minutes each on major topics to be selected by the moderator. We talked about those earlier in the week and announced at least one week prior to the debate. Well, Chris Wallace will open each segment with a question, after which each candidate will have two minutes to respond. Candidates will then have an opportunity to respond to each other. The balance of the time in each segment will delve deeper into those topics, presumably. Then at 7.30-ish Pacific time, as the debate ends, they're going to return to Hugh Hewitt for an SRN debate wrap-up featuring special guests and callers reacting to the 2020 debate. And will include final comments from Greg Cluxton live from Case Western. The pre- and post-shows are going to follow the uh, standard outline that you've come to uh, appreciate among uh, the efforts on SRN News and those two um, There are two options, I should say, for listening, and you can find uh, the debate and pre-shows and post-show on 1640 The Patriot or 860 The Answer. Two of our uh, sister stations, AM uh, 1640 The Patriot and AM 860 The Answer, again with the pre-debate program at 5, the debate itself from 6 to about 7.30, and then from 7.30 to 8, roughly, uh, the post-debate show. And those two flanking events will be hosted by Hugh Hewitt. So you have an opportunity to um, follow the debate on radio, 1640, 860 AM, both Salem stations. 
Well, taking a little bit closer to home, a Portland police sergeant was sent to the hospital and at least 24 people were arrested after demonstrators gathered outside the police union building late Monday and into early Tuesday. Well, demonstrations here in Portland, which have often devolved into riots, have continued in the city for more than 120 days. I don't know where the governor who was um, so uh, careful in her comments over the weekend about the Proud Boys and uh, not tolerating violence and rioting in our city. I don't know where she uh, has been or was with this event and those ongoing, but this time five police officers were also sprayed with chemical irritants by demonstrators who first engaged in an unlawful assembly late Monday in the Kenton neighborhood before marching toward the Portland Police Associate uh, headquarters. Well, the sergeant sent to the hospital was uh, punched in the face. Well, the Portland Police Bureau learned about an un permitted march set to begin in Kitten Park at about 8.45 last night. And officers observed lots of people in the crowd carrying shields and wearing body armor and helmets. Because the posture of the gathering suggested that it would become violent, the Bureau said officers some moved into the park and seized shields to lower the likelihood that members of the gathering would use the shields to protect those intent on committing crimes, such as throwing objects at police. Well, a silver Subaru sedan marked with a Red Cross signaling it was being used as an amateur medic transport, was spotted driving dangerously in the area, and officers conducted a vehicle stop. A loaded handgun was found inside. The driver was cited for driving uninsured and without uh, seat belts and failing to signal a term. The investigation into the firearm is underway. Well, police arrested some in the crowd who interfered while they were performing their lawful duties. Officers uh, then disengaged from the park despite being pelted with water bottles, the Bureau said in a press release. Officers warned the crowd via loudspeaker that they were still welcome to demonstrate in the park, but did not have a permit to march through the streets. Well, ignoring that warning, the Bureau said demonstrators marched toward the offices of the Portland Police Association, which had been the focus of numerous violent and destructive protests in recent months. Well, in the past, police said individuals operating within large-scale demonstrations have burglarized the building, set arson fires, cut the power to the building, broke windows, caused other destruction. Several of those incidents devolved into riots where police were forced to deploy tear gas and other munitions to move the violence and destructive crowd away. Well, late last night, police warned the crowd approaching the police union that the sidewalk in front of the officers was closed and not to block vehicular traffic through North Lombard Street. The crowd dispersed about 1.30 a.m. Police made 24 arrests, including several wearing heavy body armor with rifle plating and marked with press insignia, those carrying a press pass and possessing weapons such as knives and O.C. sprays. So they're misusing press credentials. One individual who evaded arrest through a full-sized um, baseball at pursuing officers, those arrested were booked into Multnomah County Jail on various charges, including interfering with peace officers, disorderly conduct, escape, menacing, and harassment. So it continues. Meanwhile, three people, including a young boy, were killed in a reported hostage situation and shooting on Monday in Salem. Marion County Sheriff's deputies were called to an apparent hostage situation. Early on Monday afternoon, they made contact with the suspect uh, in an attempt to peacefully resolve the situation, but the deputies heard gunshots inside the home, forced their way inside. One of the deputies uh, fired an undetermined number of shots, the state police said. The 34-year-old's perpetrator uh, was a resident of Woodburn, was found dead. He appeared to have self-inflicted gunshot wounds. Deputies also found a 24-year-old 
and an 11-year-old boy, both dead, suffering gunshot wounds. A 43-year-old woman was also suffering from a gunshot wound. She was taken to a hospital with serious injuries. And a 13-year-old boy rescued from the home didn't suffer any physical uh, injuries. It wasn't immediately clear whether the uh, shooter, um, the officer's uh, The shots hit anyone. The deputy who has worked for the sheriff's office for two years has been put on administrative leave. That's standard practice after law enforcement shootings. If you're looking for a reason to pray for our city, to pray for our state, to pray for our country, I think I've just given you a couple of very good reasons to drop to our knees, acknowledging our utter need for God to intervene. Meanwhile, police departments in several states reported interruptions to 911 emergency call service last night. The Minneapolis Police Department said 911 lines are not operational nationwide, but provided few other details. The issues extend to departments in many states, Minnesota, Delaware, Arizona, Indiana, Colorado and Pennsylvania. Attention, the 911 lines are not operational nationwide. This is for phone calls and text messaging. If you need police, fire, or emergency medical assistance in Minneapolis, they wrote, please call. And they had a different number with all the uh, digits you would expect in a regular number. We will advise when the issue is fixed, the department said. Well, the Delaware State Police said its dispatch centers were experiencing a statewide interruption of service. Officials later released an update noting that service was restored. Uh, the outrage, the outage, or maybe the outrage too, appeared to resolve itself within minutes in many locations. The outages drew immediate scrutiny from the Federal um, Communications Commission, the agency responsible for regulating communication services. The FCC Commissioner Jessica Rosenvorkel, uh, she called for the situation to be investigated, saying the one system we need to work at all times is 911. She wrote on Twitter, the FCC needs to get to the bottom of this now and figure out what's going on. You certainly don't want that to happen uh, widespread across the country, particularly at this time and as we're approaching a very um, divisive election. Well, California wildfires have tripled in size in some areas as the glass fire rages through Napa and Sonoma counties. We'll tell you more about that in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll hear from Scott Rank, author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up for our next uh, two segments, we'll talk with Scott Rank, author of History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. We'll define insane and <laughs> talk about who the, who made the list. Well, the glass fire has scorched about 42,560 acres, threatened about 10,700 structures in California as the glass fire has tripled in size as the fire rages through the Napa and Sonoma counties. Now, we lived with the uh, pall of smoke that we uh, had to endure with fires here in the state of Oregon, not all of which are, are completely out. But in California, the wildfires are continuing to rage. I'm so grateful that we are no longer living with the smoke, but it is a reminder that there are people who are still living uh, under those circumstances and that firefighters who are engaged here in Oregon, some are still engaged, but others are continuing to fight wildfires in California. We certainly want to remember them in prayer. But this explosive wildfire that spurred mass evacuations in California's wine country has tripled in size, uh, in size rather, but officials are hoping better weather conditions on Tuesday are going to allow them to get a handle on the blaze. California Fire said that uh, the glass fire that's raging through Napa and Sonoma counties has tripled in size, burning 42,000 acres 
while remaining 0% contained as of this morning. The fire has expanded into Sonoma County at a dangerous rate of speed, the agency said late Monday, as the wildfire rapidly grew. As of today, officials said that at least 95 structures have been destroyed, including homes, winery installations. Over 10,700 are uh, threatened by the blaze, which began on Sunday, quickly spread. Three fires merged, scorched through vineyards and mountains onto eastern parts of Santa Rosa. Some 70,000 people are under evacuation orders, including the entire 5,000-plus population of Calistoga in Napa County. California Fire shared a video of what the fire looks like from the air from the north end of the blaze, just northwest of the town of Angwin, and it is um, pretty um, treacherous. The Sonoma County Sheriff's Office said that as uh, as of 10 p.m. last night, over 33,800 people have been evacuated there from their homes. Another 12,624 are under warning status. So keep them in your prayers. Uh, I'm so grateful God answered our prayer for rain that uh, helped to bring Oregon's fires under control. But there are others along the Pacific coast who are suffering similar circumstances even now. Well, there have been over a million coronavirus-associated deaths worldwide since the illness was first reported in Wuhan, China, in late 2019, according to St. John's Hopkins University. Uh, in January, as the virus spread to um, started to spread outside of the country's borders, the World Health Organization declared it a global health emergency, but it wasn't officially deemed a global pandemic until March. Since then, the world has been watching as uh, companies race to develop a vaccine. Numerous countries issued lockdowns in hopes of containing the virus spread and cutting down on the number of fatalities. But outbreaks at nursing homes and other care facilities added thousands to the death toll. Advancements in testing capabilities, contact tracing allowed for some return to, to normalcy, but not without officials warning of risk governments issuing a series of mandates for face coverings and social distancing. Well, still, as as countries reopen borders and loosen the coronavirus-related restrictions on travel, dining, and some other social events, health officials sounded the alarm over possible spikes in the number of cases and the danger of a second wave. Dr. Anthony Fauci says, as we get into the fall and the winter, you really want to level the uh, a level of community spread to be as low as you uh, can possibly get it. He's the nation's leading infectious disease expert and face of the White House's uh, coronavirus task force. There are certainly parts of the country that are doing well, but there are states that are starting to show an uptick in cases and even some increases in hospitalizations in some states. And he went on to say, I hope not, but we very well might start seeing increases in deaths. Dr. Fauci said now is the time to double down on enforcing public health measures in an effort to avoid having another shutdown in the U.S. Meanwhile, here at home, state health officials reported eight more COVID-19 deaths, 299 new cases of the virus in Oregon. Oregon death toll is now 555 people. As of Monday, the state reported zero new deaths. The Oregon Health Authority released uh, some information about the eight people who died, 96, 95, 81-year-olds among those uh, reported dead, a 67-year-old, 68-year-old, a 60-year-old, and a uh, 57-year-old man, most of whom had underlying conditions, and then a 66-year-old man here in Multnomah County who tested positive on the 10th of uh, September, died on the 22nd at Portland Adventist Hospital. Now, James, you and I were having a uh, conversation about um, all of this, and you used a phrase that I hadn't heard before. It's kind of a reset in determining the number of actual deaths in the state of Oregon or across the uh, the country. Can you explain to our listeners what that is and what that might mean? 
You're talking about the term death laundering, correct? Yes, death laundering was the death phrase. Death laundering is the phrase. It, it's used by um, on the internet to describe states that usually do this without disclosing when, but they will say that 25 people died yesterday. However, those 25 people really died over the last month or so, and they're not actually saying how many people died yesterday and trying to make it look like that's currently what's occurring. So... Oregon is pretty good about actually saying when the deaths occurred. Uh, most of the news agencies will report that data that Oregon reports. Um, some don't, but most do. And so we were able to tell that uh, you know, with the eight deaths uh, reported today that uh, very few of them are recent. Yeah, yeah. Death laundering, what an interesting phrase to apply to it. Well, among the counties that are reporting uh, new cases, uh, Clackamas County had 28, Multnomah 52, and Washington County 41, Marion County 49, and Lane County 32 uh, new cases of the uh, virus. So that uh, doesn't mean that other cases, uh, other counties didn't have cases, but the numbers are far fewer. Those are the highest numbers. Not surprising, uh, given the fact that these are population centers. Well, President Trump has cautioned against excess preparation for the debate tonight while Biden is aggressively preparing. Uh, President Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden are, of course, preparing for tonight's debate in starkly different ways, with the latter engaging in mock standoffs, while the former says he's leveraging as practice the contentious environment he's already facing as president. Well, according to multiple reports, President Trump has refrained from traditional debate prep, and uh, he's frowned upon practice sessions. He indicated on Sunday that former New Jersey Governor Chris uh, Christie and his attorney Rudy Giuliani helped him prep, but it's unclear what exactly that entailed. Usually the candidates will uh, give you some idea of how they're preparing. After beating former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, who prepared extensively in 2016, President Trump is suggesting he doesn't want to overdo it. Sometimes you can go too much in that stuff, I'm quoting, he said during a press briefing on Sunday. Meanwhile, his opponent, Joe Biden, has been holding mock debate sessions with senior advisor Bob Bauer and participated in huddles with top aides. The debate tonight is hosted by Fox News anchor Chris Wallace. It will be just one of many that Biden will have participated in as a politician. He has decades as a senator, presidential candidate, vice presidential nominee. He has plenty of hands-on experience with high-stakes debates. Whether he's up for the task is something that the president is banking. He does not. Says Biden, I, uh, I'm preparing to go out and make my case as to why I think he's failed, referring to Donald Trump, and why I think the answers I have to proceed will help the American people, the American economy, and make us safer internationally. He uh, was arguing that Trump won't convince voters that uh, with broadsides because the people know the president is a liar, end quote. So that debate begins uh, this evening. And as I mentioned earlier, SRN is going to make uh, the debate available on radio with some pre-debate, um, I hate to call it a show, but pre-debate uh, show and a post-debate show as well on two of our sister stations. I'll give you all those important details uh, again in just a few moments. Uh, meanwhile, the Supreme Court fight will be a front and center during this upcoming debate between Biden and Trump. No big surprise there, but it is something of a surprise given the uh, untimely death of the former justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Biden's um, uh, will be taking a post-debate train swing, so he's going to be doing some campaigning following the debates. And no handshakes between Biden and Trump at the first debate or those that follow. They say it's because of the pandemic, but it perhaps reflects the level of contention is a um, matchup uh, that uh, is not unparalleled. In fact, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. But 
certainly reflects the tenor of the of the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Scott Rank with our classic interview, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. That's coming up next here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, I have to tell you, Americans, as my next guest points out in his new book, have no idea what it's what it is to have a truly psychotic leader. Now, some might <laughs> question that, uh, like North Korea's Kim Jong Un or Iraq Saddam Hussein, um, who could be put on the level of mentally ill. But how do they compare to leaders in the past who took psychotic um, activity to a whole different level? Well, my guest, Scott Rank, is the host of the popular podcast History Unplugged. He puts madness into perspective by presenting the world's most unbelievably deranged leaders and their all-consuming addiction to power in history's nine most insane rulers. Now, can the insane rule? Can insanity be a leadership quality? Well, he takes a fascinating look at nine of history's most notorious rulers, from the Roman emperor Caligula to North Korean communist dictator Kim Jong-il, rather, uh, he paints an intimate portraits of these deeply flawed but powerful men, examining the role that madness played in their lives, the repercussions of their madness on history, and what their madness can tell us about the times in which we live. Well, my guest, Scott Rank, is the author of 12 books, including The Age of Illumination, Science, Technology, and the Reason in the Middle Ages, Lost Civilizations, and Off the Edge of the Map, Travelers and Explorers that Push the Boundaries of the Known World. His books have been translated into nine languages. He's an historian of the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. He is a professor and a podcaster. He currently hosts History Unplugged, one of the most popular history podcasts today. He lives in Kansas City with his family, probably more closely now than ever before, and joins us to talk about his fascinating book, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. Scott Rank, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. I appreciate it. This is so fascinating to me. Uh, first of all, how you selected the individuals you highlight, the nine that made the, that made the cut, and what we might learn um, in our own day when we loosely use words like insanity and, and so on. Uh, so first of all, let me ask you, what motivated you to write this book? And did the time we're living in right now in our current spate of leaders inspire you in any way? Yeah, it partially did. Uh, I think what caused it is in 2020 with the presidential election coming up, I think this issue of our politicians and uh, mental illness or even insanity will come up where people on the left might say uh, Donald Trump has narcissistic personality disorder or people on the right would say Joe Biden has dementia. But if you're comparing them to truly insane rulers in the past, like you said, imagine if Joe Exotic from Tiger King were your emperor. And we actually had cases like that in the past where someone who was a recent president had an 80 foot tall golden statue of himself that rotated to face the sun. So I get it. Our politicians today are eccentric. They say strange things on Twitter, but I want to at least give a little perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, that people like that can come across, but at least understand what has happened before. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's just give our listeners an opportunity to hear the names of those who made the list, the nine most insane leaders. Who are they? Yeah, a quick rundown is uh, Emperor Caligula of Rome, Charles VI of France, thought he was made of glass, Ivan the Terrible, uh, and Ottoman Sultan Ibrahim, George III of American Revolution infamy, uh, Ludwig II, who uh, built Neuschwanstein, the 
Disney World Castle, uh, Idi Amin of Uganda, uh, Turkmenistan President uh, Turkmenbashi, who had that tall golden statue, and Kim Jong-il, as you mentioned. Now, was it difficult for you to narrow it down to nine? Were there others that uh, that might have otherwise made the list, but you were limited in space and time? Or is this really the, the cream of the crop, if you will? Yeah, you're right. I mean, the sad thing is there are a lot of people to choose from. Uh, Adolf Hitler, he's not in the book. Joseph Stalin isn't. They ha- people ask me about that. The sad thing is those who killed thousands or millions of their own people, we have a lot of cases of that in the past. Um, what I was looking at was someone who meets uh, the legal definition mm-hmm. of insanity, that they can't determine um, what's real, what's not real, and um, that affects their actions. It's not just struggling with mental illness. That is, obviously doesn't make someone a bad person. And you have the great leaders in history struggled, like Abraham Lincoln with depression. It's how they acted and how their lack of impulse control and lack of any type of governors on their behavior made them just do terrible things. Yeah, and I, I appreciate you're making a distinction between um, clinical insanity and just evil actions. Um, because mm-hmm. there is a there is a difference and a gulf between the two. Early in the book, you write that being mad was perhaps the most appropriate way to rule in mad times. Rulers who were mad, by our definition, could actually have been responding to the most reason uh, responding in the most reasonable way in their circumstances. They faced challenges that were unimaginable today. Explain that statement in light of these nine. Right and. This is something that I always try to understand with history, that conditions were very different, so we need to understand if people seem to do or say things that seem strange. One example of that is Ivan, we call him the terrible of Russia, and he's called the great in his homeland. And um, he lived in the 1500s, killed tens, maybe hundreds of thousands, many of his own countrymen, because he thought that they were possibly going to side with the enemy. Now, part of the reason that I mean, if you want to explain and understand it, he lived um, in a time not too far away from the era of Genghis Khan um, when millions were killed, and he was working on securing his borders and making sure that slave raids didn't come in and capture his own citizens. So he was working very hard to secure his borders. You can definitely argue with what he did and whether he became terrible, but the fact that people call him great means there are those who argue that what he did in his own times was justifiable. And that's definitely a good argument, but you know we don't live in those times, thankfully, so we don't have to think about doing what people did in the past. Yeah, and I appreciate that you give us some context, because that does help us to have a better understanding of the history of these individuals, not just the history that they, uh, that they made. Who do you think was the most insane ruler in history, if it's possible to narrow it down to one? Yeah, it's, uh, I think the argument can be made for anyone, but... Um, one of my favorite, if you can call that, was the president of uh, recent president Turkmenistan, Akbar Turkmenbashi, who ruled from the early 90s until the mid 2000s, and he almost outdid Joseph Stalin with self-promotion. He had the posters of himself, statues of himself in town squares. He had that 80-foot-tall golden statue of himself I was talking about. He also had a holy book that he wrote himself, even though he wasn't completely literate. And he claimed that God had appeared to him in a dream and said, anyone who reads this three times will get into heaven. And the strangest thing about him is that he doesn't, he doesn't seem cynical. He seems to really believe what he's saying. And he seemed to think that he was doing a good thing for the people of Turkmenistan by giving them a national hero. And I should also mention he renamed the days of the week and months of the year after himself and his mother and even an asteroid too. But he thought he was helping people by doing this. 
why do you think so many powerful rulers have been insane? I mean, truly insane. Is there a connection between power and insanity? Well, um, sometimes it's genetic. People like George III uh, may have had a blood disease. Maybe mm-hmm. they grew up in traumatic situations. Um, but the best I can argue is if we look at someone like a celebrity and think that they live in a delusional bubble and they're cut off from real circumstances, imagine if a celebrity had the power to had a goon squad and could take someone out if they wanted to. You're isolated from self-criticism criticism from others for years or even decades. And if you're somebody like that who doesn't hear criticism, then you get a Muammar Gaddafi or Fidel Castro who will stand up in front of the United Nations and speak for five hours, who will claim like Kim Jong-il that the first time I golfed, I shot 38 under par. And if you already say that, people would laugh at us and they should laugh at us because it's ridiculous. But if nobody can criticize you for fear of their lives and you live in that bubble for years or decades, I think that can lead to the levels of delusion that I saw. Yeah, in fact, that raises the question, how did psychotic, narcissistic, schizophrenic uh, leaders stay in power? Now, we live in a constitutional republic. We elect our leaders. But how did these individuals manage to stay in power? And you sort of hinted at that. Was it even possible to remove them if you'd come to the conclusion that they were, in fact, insane? Right. I mean, we wonder, why didn't people get rid of them? And we can have impeachment trials. We can do all these things in the United States, votes of no confidence in parliament. Oddly enough, it seems that if you're going to be, it's better to be completely delusional than mildly delusional because you can purge people who pose any threat to you. Joseph Stalin did this a lot in the past. Idi Amin in Uganda, one of the first things he did when he became leader of Uganda in the 60s or early 70s was to liquidate opposition. But then he didn't stop there. He went to basically anyone who wasn't 200% in favor of him, and that led to the deaths of 200,000 Ugandans. So, and the other thing, too, is there was a, a self-censorship. There were many people on the payroll of Idi Amin or Kim Jong-il, and you didn't know if your neighbor or friend was an informant and would turn you over to the police if you were talking about overthrowing someone. So that type of chilling effect, I think, is what allowed someone like this to stay in power for so long. Yeah, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, the book we're talking about, written by my guest, Scott Rank, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers. And it really is fascinating. I know why your podcast is popular. Uh, It's fascinating to learn something about these individuals uh, and the extent to which they went in their their leadership roles uh, and what we can learn from them in our time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Scott Rank. He is the author of History's Most Insane Rulers. And it is a fascinating book giving us the history of nine individuals that you probably would have a hard time uh, believing held positions of power. Uh, but there's a lot to be learned from history, and certainly these nine insane leaders have something to teach us uh, as well. Uh, let me um, focus on some of these individuals that you highlight in the book. Um, uh, King Charles VI of France, he thought he was made of glass. Tell us a little bit about him um, <laughs> that might help us to understand the uh, havoc he uh, he brought to his people. Yeah, that's an interesting one. So like you said, he thought he was made of glass, and he told his advisors that you have to tiptoe when you come toward me or I might shatter. And he wouldn't take a bath because, again, he thought that he might shatter and break into pieces. 
Now, why does he believe that? Um, for the same reason that people claim alien abductions today. And what I mean is, um, at that time in the Middle Ages, the analogy of glass was used by preachers and priests to say, you need to be holy and clean like glass. And those who heard that message might have listened to it a little too carefully. Maybe there's self-hypnosis, there's delusion. You, you begin to believe that you really are made of glass. What I meant by the alien abduction is, people didn't claim they were abducted until about the 1950s when Hollywood B-movies started to come out with aliens in them. People saw them, and due to disassociation from reality, they may have thought that actually happened to them. So that's what happened to him, and France almost completely fell apart when it was under his reign. So not a good situation. And he presumably inherited his position and could not be removed. Right. That's a, a difference between the past and today. When you had a dynasty, you want one of your offspring to be on the throne, even if they're really not cut out for it, because then your whole dynasty falls apart. Another example was um, an Ottoman sultan, Ibrahim, who um, practiced archery on people in his palace. I mean, he would shoot bows and arrows, would shoot arrows at them. And we don't have dynasties today, except for maybe the exception of North Korea, um, and the royalty we have don't really have any power. But that was the motivation of the past, that you need someone in your line on the throne or your dynasty falls apart, and we will put anyone there. You know, we'll try to have someone who will basically rule through them, and hopefully they'll only be a puppet and won't cause too many problems, but sometimes they couldn't be controlled, and that's how things got out of hand. What about Emperor Caligula? He built temples to himself, he made his horse a senator, he marched his armies all the way to Britain for no reason. He built a bridge um, that uh, he rode over back and forth, he pushed some of the people who had come to witness this display over into the river, as many of them drowned. Tell us a little bit about this Roman emperor Caligula and what it might have been like to live under this kind of ruler. Definitely not pleasant, that's for sure. And when I was talking about people who are disconnected from reality and start to believe that they're divine, Caligula is it. He's an emperor after Augustus when emperors uh, start to accept worship from people. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the things he pointed his horse senator uh, probably something that he did that, according to one source, he may have you know, bankrupted Rome or uh, triggered a famine. He, uh, an astrologer said that there's no way you could become emperor. You had just, uh, just as much of a chance as becoming one as crossing this gulf that's near Naples that's three miles long. So he has a bunch of pontoon or a boat set up and has a bridge constructed along this gulf and rides back and forth on his horse. And so many boats have to be used to make this bridge that they can't get grain from other ports in Egypt, and it triggers a famine. So you think, why does he do this? And if it really did happen, um, somehow thinking that proving that he's this divine status is good for the Roman uh, Empire because they have such a great ruler. So in his mind, somehow it made sense, and it's scary to think that someone like that could come to power. Yeah, not only come to power, but remain in power. Yeah, uh, exactly. You write, it's, um, yeah. You write about yeah, the Yeah, he was assassinated a few years, but then he was taken out. So there's an end yeah. there. <laughs> there is that. <laughs> Bavaria's Mad King uh, Ludwig II, um, he built himself a fabulous fairy tale castle in the 1800s. Um, he had imaginary friends. He loved to take uh, dangerously high-speed midnight sleigh rides through the Alps, uh, even in blizzards. What's his story? Well, if you have uh, seen pictures of Bavaria in southern Germany, you've definitely seen Neuschwanstein Castle, which is the inspiration for Disney World, and mm -hmm. you've done puzzles, you'll see that picture. 
Ludwig used his family's wealth to build these fairy tale-like castles, even though it's the 1800s and castles are completely useless for any reason. He is someone that, um, he was much more harmless than a lot of these people. He didn't have people killed. He didn't trigger any famines or anything. He squandered Bavaria's wealth, but you could say he left a legacy because any Frommer's Guide for uh, Germany will take you toward his castles. He was a patron of Richard Wagner, so we have his operas because of Ludwig's patronage. He was a dreamer, and people didn't like him, so that's why he was kicked out of power, because he was so terrible with money. But you know, a lot of great works of art were commissioned by patrons that may not have been as good with their money. So there's anyone who's left a good legacy behind, I would say that it's him. Hmm. Um, there are two contemporaries, um, President Idi Amin of Uganda and Supreme Leader Kim Jong-il of North Korea. We know a little bit of their history if we've been paying attention. Um, similarities, dissimilarities between the two of them who had visions of grandeur in terms of their their personal worth and value and their leadership styles? Yeah, the uh, Idi Amin is, I would say, one of the worst of the lot just because yes. of how sadistic he was. He personally mutilated people, tortured them. You can watch the film Last King of Scotland to get an idea of this. Oh, yes. um, he was so... He was celebrated in the beginning because uh, this is when Uganda first gained its independence. He was the second president. Uh, he would mock Great Britain and sent them a boatload full of bananas as a way of thanking them for the days of colonialism. But um, when I mentioned earlier the, the fear that people had because an enormous informant network of him, his was set up, there were maybe ten or 20,000 people on his payroll. 200,000 people died in his torture chambers. And um, Uganda was set back for decades. Its economy was ruined. And with Kim Jong-il, it's usually an exaggeration to compare a country to 1984. But in his case, that almost seems to come true, Mm -hmm. where his picture and his father's picture were required of people in everyone's houses. There's a pledge of loyalty. It sounds like you're saying catechism um, in a church. And he seemed to think that I am the embodiment of the will of the Korean people. So when people are praising me and essentially worshiping me, it's good for Korea and it strengthens Korea and seemed to really think that what he was saying was good for it. Um, but it, North Korea was completely impoverished and people starved. There was a horrible famine in the 90s, um, mostly because of his self-isolation, um, mostly because um, there wasn't trade allowed with the outside world. Um, it was completely self-inflicted, and um, whatever he thought he was trying to do for the good of the people really did turn it into a 1984 situation. Yeah, yeah. There are historians who have argued that there's a connection between genius and madness. Um, your thoughts on that, and are we talking about idiot savants who somehow in their insanity <laughs> have certain elements of genius? Well, um, I'd say that dealing with mental illness, it obviously doesn't make someone evil. I mean, millions of people suffer depression, doesn't make them a bad person at all. In fact, um, there's an argument that some of the greatest leaders we've ever had, like Abraham Lincoln, Winston Churchill, Martin Luther King Jr., all of whom suffered from depression, but it was that inner struggle, which they won, allowed them to deal with outer struggles. And it's um, not so much mental illness that uh, makes you a bad person, but it reveals your true nature. So if you are uh, an innately evil person, then 
mental illness removes all the governors that you have, and you really do go for it. Um, and then on the flip side, too, people who were um, able to accomplish great things, I mean, I think Ludwig with his castles, he left a lasting mark on society. Uh, George III, someone else who struggled with mental illness, but he was a great patron of the arts. He loved mm-hmm. Handel, he loved Baroque music, and he supported it, and that's what allowed it to spread throughout England. So he, due to their struggles, they were able to leave some good things behind. So I think that's maybe to their credit, these some of these people in the book and others as well, like the great leaders in history. Yeah. Well, I think people are looking for good material to read during this time of somewhat isolation and sheltering in place. History's Nine Most Insane Rulers, I think, is informative. It's uh, somewhat entertaining, but also it's a cautionary tale. Uh, it's book, uh, published by Regnery History. What do you hope your readers will learn as they look back at these leaders uh, in terms of choosing leaders in the future? I guess I'd say this. Um if there's anything that these people have in common is that they're committing the biggest sin in politics. And that's that they believe their own press and all politicians do this to some degree, but if someone's in power for too long, then they start to believe it so much that it becomes the only thing true to them. That's what happened to the Kim family. That's what happened to others. So it's probably not going to happen to you. You're probably not going to be ruled by this, but just watch out. I mean, if they start to look too much like people like this, then yeah, time to get plane tickets and go elsewhere. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Scott Rank. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Once again, the title of the book, History's Nine Most Insane Rulers, published by Regnery History. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you that the Salem Radio Network is going to present live coverage of the first 2020 presidential debate between President Donald Trump and Joe Biden, which is being moderated by Chris Wallace of Fox News Channel. Uh, now, there's going to be a pre-debate discussion beginning now by Hugh Hewitt and a post-debate discussion also featuring Hugh Hewitt at 7.30 following the 6 o'clock p.m. debate. You can listen to all of that at two of our sister stations, both AM stations, 1640 The Patriot and 860 The Answer. Again, beginning with the pre-debate coverage at 5 o'clock, the debate itself at 6 o'clock, and the post-debate discussion at 7.30-ish, depending on how the uninterrupted commercial debate, um, which begins at 6 p.m. Pacific time, how much time that actually takes. So again, uh, uh, 1640 The Patriot, 860 The Answer, both AM stations right here on KPDQ. And Hugh Hewitt will anchor the uh, two programs flanking the debate at 6 o'clock p.m. So do keep that in mind. Well, there have been over uh, a million coronavirus deaths associated worldwide Uh, Since the illness was first reported in Wuhan, China in late 2019, according to Johns Hopkins University data, in January, as the virus began to spread outside the country's borders, the World Health Organization declared it a global health emergency, but it wasn't officially deemed a global pandemic until March. Countries have reopened borders, loosened the coronavirus-related restrictions on travel, dining, and other social events. Health officials sounded the alarm over possible spikes in cases uh, as being dangerous, though, if we are not careful moving into the fall and winter months. Uh, 
In other developments, a coronavirus group will argue that Media Matters should have been ineligible for PPP loan. And uh, Joy Behar and Ted Cruz bickered on The View. Is that news, really? I mean, Joy Behar pretty much bickers with anyone who doesn't march in lockstep with her views. But they argued over New York uh, Governor Cuomo's nursing home scandal. Dr. Fauci has called for Florida to lift their restaurant restrictions, saying they're very concerning. And one in three uh, parents don't intend to have their child get a flu vaccine this year. President Trump's coronavirus advisory uh, advisor, rather, Atlas, fired back against uh, Dr. Redfield's criticism, saying his advice is based on current science. Well, a woman who allegedly plowed into Trump supporters but uh, the New York Times left out key details in its coverage. The New York Times and NPR covered the same story on Sunday when a liberal activist was caught on video allegedly plowing a car through a group of Trump supporters. But the liberal newspaper omitted a key detail that NPR and other outlets managed to divulge. Tatiana Turner was charged with attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon after she allegedly tried to plow through a group of pro-Trump demonstrators. Over at the Gray Lady, the New York Times, the same story had... uh, Remarkably different framing. They wrote a woman was charged with attempted murder after the car she was driving struck two people during a demonstration for racial justice in California that clashed with a counter protest on Saturday. The authority said Times reporter Maria Fazio wrote without ever mentioning that the alleged victim was a Trump supporter. Now, if it had been the other way around, it would have been in a bright relief. Well, after mentioning the victim did not suffer life threatening injuries, the Times reported that it was Unclear whether they were part of the Caravan for Justice group or the counter-protest group because both groups had converged at the time. Well, it was clear what the situation was. They just failed to report it. NPR, however, uh, they report uh, reported um, and featured video that showed the victims were clearly Trump supporters, as, uh, supporters rather, as many were waving flags and wearing Trump merchandise. Well, in other developments, the Biden campaign quickly capitalized on the Trump tax disclosure report with T-shirts, buttons and stickers making the point. And Biden supporters are trying to take over Trump, uh, Trump quarter uh, corner rather on a popular Florida street. We'll see how that clash turns out. Meanwhile, Megan McCain has given birth to a baby girl named Liberty. Minneapolis police are investigating an alleged ballot harvesting scheme by Omar Associates. That's Alex, uh, one of the members of the House. And police have reported 911 emergency call service outages in multiple states. The FCC is trying to get to the bottom of that. House Democrats have unveiled an updated version of the HEROES Act. And Patrick Mahomes' mother, Randy, jabs announcers over her son's name. Uh, Gunfire erupted inside a Mexican bar, killing 11 during a violent turf war. Well, bankrupt gunmaker Remington October, or rather outdoor, will be broken up and sold, we're learning. And Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey donated $10 million to Anti-Racist Center. Um, Governor Cuomo is extending the moratorium on his uh, uh, evictions in New York. And a billionaire is revealing why he may be the next big name to escape the Golden State. That's what he referred to it. Escape the Golden State. Well, the AP tweet um, and the story um, brought uh, complete shock at the bias of the biblical concept held by the Supreme Court nominee. AP writes, Barrett tied to a group that believes men are the head of the household. Molly Hemingway points out, my husband is the uh, head of our Christian family. Subjugation is always a false and bigoted way to describe this Christian teaching, but something of an obvious self, um, self-own when uh, used as an attempted 
hit on a woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Hugh Hewitt also weighs in, saying Barrett's advocates are trying to frame questions about her involvement in people of praise and anti-Catholic bigotry ahead of her upcoming Senate nomination hearing. Anti-Catholic bigotry is a given. Question is whether senators will violate Article 6. Uh, Rebecca Heinrich says, consider the possibility that the Christian view of the husband being the head of the household, even as his wife is a nominee for SCOTUS, isn't the abusive bad thing you're imagining. Alexandria De Sanctis, she looks at why the modern day feminist hates Barrett, which isn't too difficult to figure out, and conservative women everywhere are inspired by her. Dr. Albert Moeller points out the Democrats find themselves in a particularly difficult predicament. For starters, Amy um, Coney Barrett is fundamentally and unquestionably qualified. Secondly, Democrats must now navigate the optics of their party, opposing a woman being appointed to the Supreme Court just weeks before the 2020 presidential election. Notwithstanding these realities, Democrats will oppose her with every political weapon available in their arsenal. Some Democratic senators have already stated that they will refuse to meet with Judge Barrett before the confirmation hearings begin. And activists from the left wing of the Democratic Party are suggesting that it would be uh, treasonous for Democratic senators to even participate in the hearings at all. The situation is only becoming more interesting minute by minute. Well, I suppose interesting is one way to put it. Well, tonight's debate is going to cover that Supreme Court nomination and the process leading up to her confirmation. It'll also cover COVID-19, race and violence. Along with Trump and Biden's records, economy and integrity of the election will be um, on the lineup as well. According to a Monmouth poll, 74 percent of voters plan to watch the first debate. On the economy, 64 percent of bankers say a Trump victory would be best for their industry. Um, From William McGurn, he points out that the first question Mr. Biden should have to answer in Tuesday night's debate, Mr. Trump, is whether the former vice president will unequivocally repudiate the attacks on Judge Barrett's faith and make clear they have no room in his Democratic Party. In other news, Black Lives Matter activists in Louisville are harassing, uh, making demands on local business owners. The protesters say business owners in the area have benefited from years of gentrification following the demolition of a public housing complex that displaced many black families. And they put forth the demands during a demonstration last week, calling on the owners to employ more black people, purchase more inventory from black retailers, among other things. They're also calling on uh, diversity training. One small business owner who refused to follow their orders had his new location burned and even had thugs show up at his home. From Christina Summers, uh, these guys guarding his store is the um, sanest uh, person in the video. There's one guy, apparently. The kids haranguing him seem like Maoist Red Guard wannabes. Denny Burke says the activists have been shaking down business owners almost all summer, creating a social justice rating system and threatening those who don't comply. Well, the Washington Post has taken a stab at Alliance Defending Freedom as they paint um, Amy Coney Barrett as extreme for speaking several times at ADF programs. The story progresses. The vitriol between ADF becomes more clear. Senator Josh Hawley points out, imagine a Christian lawyer talking to Christian law students about what it means to follow Christ in their profession. The left's cue to bring back the religious test continues. Hashtag Amy Coney Barrett. David French points out that I think I've been a Blackstone speaker about a dozen times or more. It's run by my friends and former colleagues at ADF, and it's probably the single best conservative legal training program in America. Hence the opposition and the Washington Post article. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue in just a few moments. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show as we wind our way through some of the top news stories of our day. Well, a court has ruled that children can use locker rooms based upon their chosen gender. The Washington Times story calls a girl a boy throughout the story caving to the AP style manual and making the story really confusing, confusing rather. The Minnesota Court of Appeals ruled against the school, which was trying to keep boys and girls separated in their locker rooms, having a designated room for those who claim to be biologically what their biology is not was unacceptable, according to the court. Well, getting him tossed from his discussion at a college because of his views on Muslims, the woke have come for David, or rather Richard Dawkins. From the story, the contemporary woke, like Bolshevik revolutionaries are over a century ago, are driven by an essentially religious fanaticism. They don't believe in God, but they hold their beliefs with the same kind of zealotry, and they consider those beliefs to be infalsifiable. Somebody like Dawkins must not even be given a platform to spread his error according to this way of thinking. Well, 58 artists have shown support for J.K. Rowling with a letter published in the Saturday Times uh, that included this. Rawlings has consistently shown herself to be an honorable and compassionate person, and the appalling hashtag RIP J.K. Rawlings is just the latest latest, um, example of hate speech directed against her and other women that Twitter and other platforms enable and implicitly endorse. J.K. Rowling uh, was clearly touched by the gesture. President Trump has received a third Nobel Peace Prize nomination, this time for his general foreign policy. And the Emmy Awards saw a massive drop in audience, 20 percentage points from last year. Well, Trump and Biden square off tonight in their first presidential debate. You can learn more about that. At two of our sister stations, Salem Media Stations, uh, 1640 The Patriot, 860 The Answer. In fact, right now, Hugh Hewitt is anchoring the pre-debate program. And at 6 o'clock p.m., you can listen to the 90-minute debate, followed by a post-debate program also hosted by uh, Hugh Hewitt. 1640 AM The the Patriot and 860 The Answer. The Democrats' $2.2 trillion COVID relief bill is still likely too rich for the GOP, but they've passed one. And Senate Republicans are eyeing an Amy Coney Barrett floor vote at the end of October, just days before the election. Senator Dianne Feinstein is seen walking through an airport without a mask just three months after she demanded a nationwide mask mandate. Apparently, rules are for the little people. And Cindy McCain has been appointed to Joe Biden's transition team. And yes, that's the widow of... Uh, the former senator, John McCain. Well, Biden's Texas political director has been implicated in massive mail-in ballot harvesting scheme in Harris County. And voter fraud in in Minnesota continues as Project Veritas posts a second video. Minneapolis police say that um, they're going to look into allegations of ballot harvesting connected with Ilhan Omar. The Minneapolis plan to defund the police has collapsed. City council members now regret making the pledge. And the officer who shot Jacob Blake believed he was attempting to kidnap a child, according to his attorney. Well, global global, uh, coronavirus death toll has reached one million. And President Trump has announced the distribution of some 150 million rapid tests. Tens of thousands gathered in Washington, D.C. over the weekend. Uh, to march, the D.C. prayer march, because things change when you pray. And an Arizona uh, police officer stopped at 3 a.m. to pick up a fallen American flag. 
It made news. In a military first, the supercarrier is named after Doris Miller, a heroic black sailor at Pearl Harbor. And this uh, day in history, 1789, the U.S. War Department establishes a regular army with the strength of 700 men. 1829, London's reorganized police force, which would become known as Scotland Yard, goes on duty. 1938, British, French, German, and Italian leaders conclude the Munich Agreement, which is aimed at appeasing Adolf Hitler by allowing Nazi annexation of Czechoslovakia, Studentenland. 2005, John Roberts Jr. is sworn in as the nation's 17th Chief Justice after winning Senate confirmation. On this day in history, 2009, a tsunami kills nearly 200 people in Samoa, American Samoa, and Tonga. And on this day in history, 2014, in a speech to the United Nations, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu warns that Hamas and the Islamic State group are branches of the same poisonous tree, both bent on world domination through terror, just like the Nazis. Well, ahead of tonight's debate, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign released the 2019 tax returns for Biden and running mate Kamala Harris calling on President Trump to do the same hours before the two are set to face off in the first presidential debate. It marked the latest jab in a heated battle between the two campaigns. Hours earlier, the Trump campaign called for a new uh, ground rule establishing a third party monitor to check their earpieces during the uh, debate, a request the Biden team denied. The president suggesting that Biden might be fed answers during debate. Well, Donald Trump and Joe Biden are likely to stay in good health for the duration of the next presidential term and maybe super agers who will significantly outlive other men their age. That's according to a new study. It's a projection undercutting criticism about the septuagenarian's age and mental fitness that had plagued both candidates on the campaign trail. Well, the study, which was released as a draft before being published uh, next month in the Journal of active aging, analyzed publicly, uh, publicly available information about both candidates' health and was undertaken by three medical doctors and four research experts in public health, survival analysts, and statistics and aging. Both Biden and Trump come from families with histories of exceptional longevity, making it possible both men are super agers who will maintain their mental and physical functioning into late life and giving both candidates higher than average probability of surviving the next presidential term as compared with other men their age. Biden, now 77 years old, is expected to outlive Trump due to his exceptional health profile for a man his age with a projected lifespan of 96.8 years and a 95.2% likelihood of surviving his presidential term. Trump, who's 74, has significant but modifiable risk factors due to his obesity and sedentary lifestyle, but his estimated lifespan is 88.6 years, and he has a 90.3% probability of surviving his second term. A rather interesting uh, projection forward. Well, last year, or I should say last election, 2016, was the most watched debate in American history. It was the first face-off between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, neither of which were um, incumbents. Well over 80 million people tuned in to see Hillary and Donald face-off, setting a new record in the 60-year history of televised presidential debates. Debates. Well, according to Nielsen, the debate averaged a total of 84 million viewers across 13 of the TV channels that carried it live. Many millions also watched the debate via live streams on the web. Nielsen's 84 million total counts uh, counts people who watched via traditional TV channels at home, 
People who watched the debate at parties, bars, restaurants, and offices were not counted. Neither were C-SPAN viewers. This means the actual total audience was even higher. On the TV side, CNN and other cable news networks uh, saw big increases over past election years. So did the broadcast networks. NBC had the highest audience overall, partly because NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt was the moderator of the debate. Upwards of 18 million people watched the debate on NBC. ABC drew a large crowd, as did CBS, Fox News, and so on. And the question is whether or not that will be the case this time around. Uh, More recently, the first Obama-Romney debate in 2012 averaged about 67 million viewers. Um, Nielsen data confirmed that viewership stayed high the entire time. And contrary to some speculation, there was uh, not a big drop-off after the first 30 minutes of the 98-minute debate. So we'll see what the numbers are this time. This is much later than presidential debates typically uh, are held. There are only three of them, so that might make this more important than if there were more than three debates between the two candidates. Uh, Many ballots have already been cast, and many people have already hardened their view as to their support for one candidate or the other. Uh, But it will be interesting to see where the numbers stack up this time around. The second debate uh, this uh, last four years for President Trump, it certainly – Joe Biden not being a a novice of any kind. We've seen a lot of things that are unprecedented in this last year, this year that we're currently living in. But this uh, election might parallel an election in 1876. When we come back, we'll take a look at the election of 1876 and 2020 and see what those parallels might teach us about what's happening in the next few weeks here in the United States in 2020. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Even in good times, it might be hard for some people to gain a sense of historical perspective. But in an age when leftist dogma has seized control of the news media, social media, and the cultural zeitgeist, it's pretty much impossible to gain a true understanding of history. Donald Trump was president for barely 24 hours in 2017 before leftist political pundits proclaimed him the worst president in American history. According to their views of the world, Trump is worse than Hitler and everything he does is harming America on an unprecedented scale. Of course, in one sense, it's easy to dismiss this as hyperbolic um, designed to divide us. But the sad news is that this strategy is working in large parts because the American people don't have enough um, Uh, even a middling sense of its history. Now, take, for instance, the concerns swirling about the outcome of the 2020 election. The left is making every attempt to undermine its legitimacy by claiming that Trump won't concede if he loses. And if he wins, he'll be it will be because most of the uh, corrupt election uh, is due to his manipulation. Most corrupt presidential election in history, they will argue, only someone who doesn't know our history might say that. Well, the most corrupt presidential election by far is the election of 1876. The contest during America's centennial year between Republican Rutherford B. Hayes and Democrat Samuel Tilden was decided by nothing short of a backroom deal that established generations of segregation and reversed the legal gains made by blacks after the Civil War. 1876 was a tough year for the country. The economy was still reeling from 1873 depression, which was the worst economic calamity to date. Ulysses S. Grant, his administration, had turned out to be one of the most corrupt in the nation's history, riddled with men on the take, thanks to, in part to a president whose military skills on the battlefield far outweighed his political instincts in the nation's capital. And through a series of controversial and politically motivated decisions, the Supreme Court was systematically undergoing the work 
of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that had freed the slaves and given them equal protection under the law. The South, which had been under federal military control since 1865, remained a hotbed of violence, blacks and whites, who showed respect for a represented uh, federal authority, were persecuted, attacked, and even murdered. Well, Grant contemplated running for a third term, but his odds for re-election were long. Thus, Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes became the Republican standard bearer. And while Democrat Samuel Tilden bested Hayes in the popular vote by more than 250,000 votes, Tilden failed to win a majority of the Electoral College. Now, disputes and irregularities in Louisiana, South Carolina, Florida, and right here in Oregon – through the election into chaos and among the claims were confusion over the design of the ballots over voting. South Carolina reported a voting rate of 101 percent and widespread intimidation against Republican voters. Oregon's Democrat governor attempted to negate a Republican elector by claiming that he was not qualified. Now, this may sound familiar. Anger in the country bubbled to the surface. In Ohio, someone took a shot at Hayes residence. Mobs formed in cities around the country. Grant called the army to alert in Washington. The Democrat-controlled House did not trust the Republican Senate to faithfully count the electoral votes, and the Republican Senate did not trust the House to faithfully carry out its constitutional duty to decide the election once the regular voting process had yielded no result. So a 15-person commission was formed, made up of five representatives, five senators, and five Supreme Court justices. After intense deliberation, this electoral commission voted to award the election to Hayes. Democrats agreed to accept the results on the condition that the federal troops be moved from the last two southern states still under Reconstruction rule, South Carolina and Louisiana. Was it coincidence that these two states were also overtaken by mob violence on Election Day? Well, don't count on it. The end of Reconstruction in the South meant a rapid return of the Democrats to political control in the region. State by state, they stripped blacks of property rights and used poll taxes, violence and intimidation to disenfranchise blacks across the South. Virtually all black officials in local and state governments, and there were many, uh, elected during the Republican era were voted out of office within one or two election cycles. The era of Jim Crow had begun. Could the 1876 election be replayed this year? Well, there are certainly parallels to be drawn, judging by the mood of the st- in the streets, the thuggery of one side, the lack of respect for the system by some of its citizenry, and the corruption and greed of some of those who have elected t- to run it. And despite these eerie commonalities, it's wrong to assume that the 2020 election will be the worst in the nation's history. We tend to look at our own times as the best or the worst in history for no other reason than we are living here and now. We have no real sense of perspective for what came before us. Well, that's the shame, because if um, we could take an honest look at the election of 1876, we might learn a few things about the frailty of our republic the uh, trappings of power, and the nature of mob mentality. That knowledge would help us avoid repeating history. Sadly, few of us have that knowledge, and we are very likely than not to repeat history. Well, New York City voters who planned to vote by mail in November's election were worried about their votes, um, whether or not they'll be invalid after residents in two boroughs have complained that their absentee ballots are mismarked. Well, Brooklyn voters have received ballots bearing someone else's name and address on the accompanying return envelope. And while residents of both Brooklyn and Queens received ballots incorrectly marked as military ballots. Well, there's just mass confusion about these ballots and what people are supposed to do with them, says one councilwoman uh, quoted by the New York Post in reference to the military ballots. Those ballots read 
official absentee military ballots, but a Board of Elections a spokesperson confirmed that the post that it was supposed to say absentee military, but the dash was mistakenly omitted. More than half a million ballots have already gone out to voters, but the Elections Board did not know how many had the error. The Post reported that the spokesperson said the ballots um, will be counted, but Van Brammer criticized the board for causing the panic. And Van Brammer is the uh, uh, head of the elections board. Well, this apparent typo just has everyone confused in believing these are invalid ballots. It's absolutely outrageous that when everyone is watching them, they will screw up the most basic thing, which is printing a ballot correctly. A separate problem from Brooklyn voters noticed uh, noticed uh, appears to be far more serious. Residents in several neighborhoods reported receiving absentee ballots bearing the wrong name and address on the accompanying return envelope uh, meant for returning the completed ballot. Uh, if a voter's signature on the ballot doesn't match the name on the envelope, their vote could be deemed invalid. New York City Board of Elections uh, Executive Director Michael Ryan says that the printing errors were made by third-party vendor Phoenix Graphics. We're determined uh, determining how many voters uh, have been affected, but we can assure that the vendor will address the problem in future mailings and make sure people who received erroneous uh, envelopes receive new ones. Uh, we will ensure on behalf of the voters in Brooklyn that the proper ballots and ballot envelopes are in the hands of voters in advance of election day. And then you wonder why some people question whether or not there are going to be serious problems come November 3rd and the days following. Well, President Trump's plan for black America designates the KKK and Antifa as terrorist organizations and calls for making lynching a national hate crime while pledging to increase access to capital in black communities by nearly $500 billion. The president on Friday rolled out details of what the campaign is calling the platinum plan which details opportunity, security, prosperity, and fairness for the black community. For decades, Democrat politicians like Joe Biden have taken black voters for granted. They made you big promises before every election, and then the moment they get to Washington, they abandon you and sold you out, the president said on Friday, according to remarks um, given. The Democrats will always take black voters for granted until large numbers of black Americans vote Republican, end quote. The president uh, touted the plan as a bold vision, that we can and will achieve over the next four years. The president's plan, according to the campaign, will increase access to capital in black communities by almost $500 billion, help create 500,000 new black-owned businesses, and help create 3 million new jobs for the black community. And the, the Trump administration has introduced an America First health care plan. For whatever reason, Democrats tend to win on health care, uh, the reason is obvious. They win on health care, as with everything else they win on, because uh, they give away more free stuff than do the Republicans. And Donald Trump, however, the spendthrift left, may have met their match. Well, the president unveiled his America First plan at a campaign rally in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this was his uh, selling point, better care with more choice and a much lower cost. So what's not to love? Well, the details for one thing. Those details will go into at some point in the not too distant future as the president has rolled out his America First health care plan. And health care is at the top of the list for Democrats in this election. Um, it uh, even trumps, from what I understand, concern about unrest across the country. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back to wrap things up. I want to remind you that the presidential debate, the first in a series of three, begins in just a few moments. And you can turn to our sister stations, 1640 a.m., The Patriot, or 860 a.m., The Answer, to hear that 90-minute debate. It will be followed by a, um, an SRN debate wrap-up featuring special guests and callers reacting to the uh, then-completed debate. Hugh Hewitt will anchor that event. So check that out, 1640 a.m., The Patriot, 860 a.m., The Answer for the presidential debate and post-debate program. Also want to remind you, October the 1st is Bring Your Bible to School Day. Well, this is a bit of a different year. Bring Your Bible to School Day is October 1st. It's just a couple of days away. And uh, even if things are a bit different this year, they're encouraging young people to do just that. Uh, In fact, uh, Jim Daly, uh, in an email that was sent out to a number of families, he says, I look forward to this day every year. Hundreds of thousands of students around the country encourage their classmates with favorite scripture verses, talk about Bible stories they've learned, invite friends to church, and so much more. If you and your family are not signed up, please do so right away at bringyourbible.org so we know that you're participating. We want to have an accurate count of every family who's involved and pray for you. I know this 2020 school year looks very different, but hashtag bring your Bible is as important as it has ever been. There's lots of uncertainty and upheaval in our world right now, and we can and should thank God that he has given us his word. And best of all, it never, ever changes. It's a firm foundation. He then quotes Isaiah 48, saying the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Those are powerful words. Your friends and neighbors need to hear that encouragement and know how the Bible is a real guide for you and your family. So go to the website for more information and they'll tell you how this is going to be carried out in 2020 as many students are um, distance learning. But this is a good opportunity for students to encourage one another to have conversation and this has been the case over the years to um, minister and share with some of their classmates as well. Also want to remind you that Salem Media is hosting our first ever virtual pastors appreciation event featuring today's leading names in Christian teaching and music. And there are a series of events that are taking place over the four weeks in October. This is our first ever virtual pastor appreciation uh, event, uh, a lineup of leading voices uh, that include, uh, let's see, John MacArthur, Chuck Swindoll, Alistair Begg, Tony Evans, Robert Jeffress, Greg Laurie, Alan Jackson, Byron uh, Brian Chappell, um, Samuel Rodriguez, Paul Cannings, worship artists are going to perform that will include Matthew West, Natalie Grant for King and Country, Mandisa, and many others. Now, it all begins this Thursday, October 1st, uh, and releasing each Thursday throughout October, pastors will experience a robust gospel-minded presentation created and customized just for you. Now, this weekly online event will feature prayer, worship, and a powerful word of encouragement and edification tailored to a pastor's heart. During a time of widespread pandemic, national quarantine, civil unrest, leaders and churches serve a vital source of support in local communities. We want to um, encourage and inspire and equip pastors to continue to do just that. For more than two decades, those of you who are in this area and have attended our events know that Salem has hosted hundreds of live and in-person pastor appreciation events across the country. We love pastors. We appreciate the love and care that you provide to your congregations, to our communities, and beyond. This year, however, with the pandemic, that simply has not been possible. So that's why we've assembled such an amazing array of content, which will speak directly to pastors and which can be easily accessed online. 
We believe Jesus Christ designed his church and he will build it. He does that through local pastors and local churches. And we want to come alongside these pastors and ministry leaders to encourage you as you serve God faithfully and lead the church. Uh, Salem president and broadcast um, uh, David Santrella said that Salem's pastor appreciation events are a highlight of the year. They certainly are for me, too, personally. And the pastors we serve, COVID-19, may have stopped a lot of activities, but thanks to the creativity of the team at Salem Media, we're going to still have the opportunity to let our pastors know how much we love you and appreciate you. This online series of events has the potential to reach even more pastors through the various channels of digital content delivery. So we hope you'll take full advantage of our pastor appreciation events, plural. Once again, beginning on Thursday, October 1st and releasing every Thursday throughout October, pastors will experience a robust gospel-minded presentation created and customized just for you. Now you can go to kpdq.com for all the important details and register for one or all of the four events taking place on Thursdays, beginning this Thursday, October 1st in the month of October. So we're, um, we're pretty excited about that. Also want to let you know that pastors, you could win $2,000 in a technology upgrade. You can start by entering your email address or choosing one of the social networks that are currently available. You can get all the details for both the pastor appreciation events as well as this $2,000 technology upgrade giveaway. Full promotional terms and conditions are there as well. This one is for pastors and uh, ministry leaders, and it's part of our effort to help celebrate Pastor Appreciation Month this October. And we put together two very special opportunities for our pastors across the country. The first is our virtual pastor appreciation events. These will be special messages, music, and so on that I've uh, been discussing. The second is a special giveaway, the opportunity for you to win a $2,000 technology upgrade. Now, you tell us what you need, hardware, software. You tell us up to $2,000 in value, and we'll ship it your way if you're our winner. Plus, we have a $500 shopping spree with our friends at Cascade Furniture. We want you to know that we appreciate you and your ministry to our local church. We want to encourage you during this very challenging time and encourage you to participate with us this year in these special opportunities. And again, go to kpdq.com for all the important details to enter to win. I'm pretty excited about the opportunity that this pandemic has given us to reach out to minister to pastors in a much broader way than we otherwise would have. So with the challenges come opportunities, and we want to take full advantage of both. KPDQ.com, you can't miss the uh, banner for pastor appreciation. Uh, one final reminder, the uh, debate between President uh, Donald Trump and uh, his uh, opponent, Joe Biden, begins at uh, 6 o'clock Pacific time, and you can listen in at 16.40 a.m. The Patriot or 8.60 a.m. The Answer. Salem Media is uh, hosting its first ever virtual um, uh, event uh, that will focus on um, the uh, the debate. And there's going to be a post-debate uh, event as well with Hugh Hewitt, and that will follow immediately after the 6 o'clock debate, which will be around 7.30. Uh, this is a 90-minute debate, and then at 7.30, the uh, the Hugh Hewitt will anchor this event featuring some special guests, callers, and so on, kind of a wrap-up of uh, of tonight's debate. We'll also cover that tomorrow during the program, so if you don't have the opportunity to listen in, we hope to have some audio uh, clips for that to 
give you some of the highlights. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.